really good to see you guys this morning. I brought something with me, and I'm going to ask you guys to identify it. I know it's very mysterious at this point. Does anybody know what this is? Specifically what this is? It is not a Max Donut. That's right. Uh, This is an Orem's Donut cinnamon roll. And when I used to teach the teens, when we had Sunday school here, I would bring donuts every now and then. We would argue about who had the best donuts. And I would always say, this is hands down the best donut. But I live over in New Brighton, so Orem's is closer to me. Um, If somebody asked me, pick a part of that donut to eat, I would struggle a little bit because the, the middle of a cinnamon roll, you know, has like more goo and like cinnamon in it. And like, it's kind of my favorite part, but sometimes you have a system. <laughs> Maybe that's just me, but my system is to like eat from the outside of the donut around to the inside. And so I'm telling you this because that's what this passage felt like to me when I read it. Because I was like, Exodus, all of chapter three, Through chapter 4, verse 17 is the passage of the encounter with Moses at the burning bush. And it's just so good. It's so rich. There's so much in it that we can't possibly eat it all right now, as much as I want to. So we'll do what we can, but I would just encourage you to get into this and, like, see what God is going to draw out for you and point out to you even after today. And I will bring you what he showed to me. So I'm going to give you a quick background of where we've been the last couple of weeks. We're in the book of Exodus, which is about departure. When I use the word story in talking today, just remember that I'm talking about Bible narrative and it's actual event. It's not just like a story I'm telling you. It's something that actually happened. Um, And in this story, God's people, the Israelites, are living in the land of Egypt. He brought them there um, many years prior to this particular event we're going to talk about. And in that place, um, their numbers became so prolific. God blessed them so much that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, became very threatened by them. And he decided, you know what, I'm going to enslave these people. That's how I'm going to control this threat that this large people group is to to me personally. And not only him, but they were enslaved so long that other pharaohs after the original guy continued to oppress and to harm these people to the extent that at its worst, they were throwing the male baby boys in the Nile River to kill them, to keep the Israelites from continuing to grow. And in that point of the story, you have Moses, who God raises up and by sparing his life. He, his mother puts him by the Nile River in a basket. And one of the daughters of the Pharaoh found him and adopted him and raised him as an Egyptian. And then he grows up. He still feels an affinity for his people, even though he is kind of separate in a lot of ways. And he goes out and he sees one of the taskmasters um, just beating one of his fellow Israelites. And he intervenes and kills this man. And the next day he goes out and he sees two Israelites fighting with each other. And he says, what are you guys doing? And one of them says to him, hey, who are you? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? And in this moment, two things happen. Moses feels deeply rejected by his own people. And also he knows that other people know he killed somebody. Because that guy says, are you going to kill us too? Like you killed that Egyptian? And so then he flees. He goes to the wilderness. He ends up becoming a shepherd. 
and he's working for the man who becomes his father-in-law. And that's where our story picks up. So we're in Exodus 3. We have a slide for this. This is a large passage, so I'm not going to ask you to stand, but it will be on the screen for you. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Okay, so here we are. We're picking up with this story with Moses, and he has just had this sudden encounter with the Lord. Okay, and in this place, um, when he comes into this place, Kiara preached last week on how he had been, been growing in his own deliverance. How when he killed that Egyptian, he had used the tool of empire to, to murder that man, essentially. And it didn't accomplish any good for the kingdom. But then he fled. He's probably feeling rejected and also guilty at this point. And God has done some restoration work in him. But then he comes to this burning bush and this holy encounter with God. And when God tells him who he is, he hides his face because he's afraid. And I think part of this is highlighting him hiding because there's still more work for him in deliverance. You'll see if you continue to read this account that he's still deeply um, wounded, I think, inside. He still has deep places where God is going to continue to heal him. But the point is (laughs) that we all need deliverance. Even when we've had deep encounter with God, we still encounter things in our life. We encounter trouble, hardship, suffering, injustice, pain, all kinds of things that God wants to deliver us from. And um, so so Moses isn't done. 
Um, God's going to use him that way. And even when he acts as a deliverer, and even if you're in this place where God has raised you up to walk alongside other people in their deliverance stories, there is still more places that God wants to meet you in deliverance. And maybe you'll actually interact with this account more like the Israelites who are still in Egypt, and you're actually in that place where you feel like, God, how long am I going to be suffering this way? How long am I going to be enduring hardship waiting for your deliverance? So we're going to look at this passage through those eyes of what God is doing here. And one thing that I saw in this passage specifically that you see repeated throughout the Bible in deliverance stories is a pattern where three things come into play. And there's a slide for this. Um, I won't be able to talk about the third one. Well, maybe there isn't a slide for it. (laughs) This is good, though. Um, (laughs) Three things come into play. And in this passage, you see God's presence, God's plan, and God's power. Okay? So we're going to start with the presence, which is the account that we just read. And I just want to say that up until this moment, you know, the Bible hasn't really told us too much about what Moses' interactions with the Lord are. But we know that this is a moment in time that changes his trajectory. And a lot of things are happening right here. And these same types of things will happen in your life when you encounter the presence of God. Okay? I keep getting things out of order. <laughs> okay. So God's presence and deliverance. Um, when God first addresses Moses, the first thing that happens when God sees that Moses has turned towards him, he, see, he sees Moses is engaging the fact that he's in the burning bush. Okay, so first God drew near by being in the burning bush. Then Moses drew even nearer to God. And then God calls out his name and he says, Moses, Moses. And right here he's saying, I know who you are. I know everything about you. I know your name. I know you personally. And then he he starts to restore Moses' identity. And when you think about one of his core wounds probably being the rejection of his own people, God says, when he introduces himself, he says, I am the God of your father. Not any surrogate father that you might have had in Egypt, but the God of your father. He's talking about his physical father, Amram, because then he goes on to talk about his father's ancestors. I'm the God of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, okay? So he's restoring Moses to his own family, and he's restoring his identity in this moment. And at the same time, he's affirming his identity, okay? God is affirming his own identity and saying, I'm the same God who appeared to your ancestors, and now I'm here with you. And he says, my, one of my favorite parts is in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. I'll read them. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land. So God says, I've seen them. I've heard their cry. I'm concerned. I have come down. And this affirms his identity, his fathering identity, everything that he wants to do in this, this nation as his people, this affirms it. And the best picture I have of this in my own life is um, this memory I have from when I was 17. I went to Florida with my family because one of my cousins who lived there was getting married. And there were all of these festivities surrounding the wedding, one of which happened to be a game of tag football. <laughs> At that time, I was very competitive. I loved athletics. And so in this game, I was aggressively pursuing the guy who had the ball. And I just made this sharp turn and just heard this snap. And boom, down I'm on the ground in a lot of pain. And I just remember kind of laying there in a ball, 
thinking, I don't think I can get up. I think I was crying. And, like, quickly, my dad came over, and he tried to pick me up, like, and I find out my, my leg is giving out, you know? And so then he just picked me up. <laughs> I'm a grown woman at this point. Just picked me up and carried me this quite a long distance to our car and then took me to the emergency department. And that's what, that's what I see in this account, you know? My dad saw what happened. He probably wasn't close enough to hear it, but other people around me heard the snap. And, and he was concerned, and he came over to rescue me out of that situation and get me to where I could get further help and healing, okay? Um, and that's what God is doing here. So he's affirming his father identity to his people, saying, I've seen it. I know what you're going through. And if that's you, like if you're in that place where you're in a type of Egypt, God sees you. He hears you even when you're crying and you feel alone. And he knows what you're going through. He's concerned about it, and he will bring deliverance. Okay? Um, so our next point is that... God qualifies the called, okay? So God, God's starting to res, restore Moses' identity and affirm it, and then he, wait a second, yeah. <laughs> and then Moses says, wait a minute, who am I to go to Pharaoh, right? And I love how God does not answer this. He doesn't say, hey, I already preserved your life for this moment. I'm already raising you up to be this leader. He doesn't say that at all. He says, but I'm going with you. <laughs> And I love that because it's just like, oh, that really is the most necessary component, right? It's the presence of God to do deliverance, right? So what I was thinking about when I, when I was thinking of this was how I read this article about this really elite golf club that, that has only 300 members. Only 300. And you can't get in by paying some exorbitant fee, and you can't get in by applying. And the article I was reading said the best way, your best chance, your best hope of getting in there is being good friends with somebody who is a member. So it's like if you're with that person, nobody's going to care about who you are, but, man, all the doors are going to open for you, okay? So that's kind of what it's like here with God and Moses. God is, he has prepared Moses for this moment, but he's saying ultimately what matters is that my presence is with you, okay? And the application for that part is every time we are stepping into partnering with God and walking with somebody in a deliverance story is that he's with us. Like, that part is so important to be engaging his presence in that place. And then our next point is that God expands identity. As we continue to read this account, you know, Moses doesn't see himself as this person. God says, I'm calling you to be this person. I've made you to be this person. But Moses still doesn't see it. And God is beginning to expand how he will see himself. And the more we encounter God, he will do this in our lives. In fact, the fact that I'm standing here is an expansion <laughs> of what God wants to do in my life beyond what I ever thought he would want to do it in my life, <laughs> okay? Um, and not only that, but I think even more importantly, God is expanding his own identity. In this place, Moses says, if I go to these people who've already rejected me, they, they already said to me, who made you a prince and a judge over us? You know, and the obvious answer to that at the time was Egypt because it was Pharaoh who gave him a place in his house, Right? And the Israelites would call that a false authority, right? So now he's going, I've been rejected. They see me as somebody who's already been set up as a false authority. And now I'm going to come to them? How are they going to believe me? And God said, and he said, what will I tell them your name is? Because they're going to ask. And God said um, in verse 13 through 15, um, 
God said, I am who I am. And he said, "This say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, I'm... <laughs> Our, our translations can be so tricky, but you heard Jake reference the name Yahweh this morning. And that term, I am, when God says I am, okay, if we're reading it in English, you can understand that that means, okay, I am means I'm transcendent, right? No matter when you read that, that is current for your place and time. So not only when he said it to Moses was I am current then, but we read it now and it's like I am. He's still relevant now. He's still present now. So that's the obvious meaning but the definition of the word Yahweh, I got this from the handbook to the Bible by Zondervan. Anyway, um, as a word, that verb, the I am verb, or is it is in a name, is Yahweh, and it's related to the Hebrew verb to be. This verb goes beyond to exist. It means rather to be actively present. Yahweh is the God actively present with his people. And in choosing the time of the Exodus to reveal this particular meaning of his name, he's identifying himself as the God who is actively present to save his people. Okay, so he's, he's giving a deeper meaning to an understanding of himself that they already had. And later he says, I didn't fully reveal myself to the forefathers in this name. But I'm revealing it to Moses. He's revealing it to Moses now. So he's expanding his identity and he's saying, I am actively present. Because if you read this text, it says that the cries of the people rose up to God. And it says that God came down. And so you get this feeling that, yeah, they knew that there was like this distance, this feeling that they felt that he wasn't there. And he comes down and he says, I am, and I'm actively present to rescue you. Okay? Um, This is a place of intimacy, right? We can exchange names with a stranger, but I'm never going to tell a stranger my childhood nickname. You know, I'm not even going to say it here, <laughs> you know. Um, but, but right here, God is saying, I am present and active for your rescue. And he's revealing some of the deepest part of his character towards us. So this is a really intimate moment. And it's in places like this, in God's presence, that we actually start to be transformed more and more and more for his purposes. And we also see in this that God, is his presence is coming before the action, okay? Again, you see this over and over and over in deliverance stories in the Bible. Presence, plan, action. And what we saw when Moses killed the Egyptian taskmaster, yes, his passion was in the right place. But because he hadn't been in this intimate presence place, his plan was all wrong. So it's from this place of presence that we can actually partner with God for kingdom purposes. But without engaging this, without stepping into this, without pursuing this, we end up with only our own plan and our own power, which isn't much. Okay, so he's been in God's presence. Now we're going to move on to God sharing his plan with him. Okay, in Exodus chapter 3, verses 16 through 22, um, there's a slide for this, and I'll go ahead and read it. It says... Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." Okay, so God's revealing a portion of his plan to Moses. Now remember, the the Israelites who are still being oppressed, who are still being harmed in Egypt, don't know this plan yet, right? They're still waiting for this plan. But this plan has been revealed to Moses, who's in God's presence. And um, it's in this place that God is saying, this is how we're going to do it. We're not going to do it your way. You know, the human way is overthrow, right? Right? We know the Israelites are many in number. More than likely, they could overthrow the Egyptian rulers, but the outcome of that isn't kingdom, right? The outcome of that is simply a change in power. It's a new empire, right? So God is saying, this is my plan, and the outcome of this plan is my glory, so much so that the whole world will know of what's about to happen in Egypt, okay? So... um, there's several points about this, and this has been referenced. God's plan is counterintuitive, right? Our intuition, uh, I think Kiara talked about this with Moses, and like his passion is well-placed, but you know, he's using the tools of the enemy when he kills that Egyptian. He's using the power of empire, and that is not God's plan. Um, but the other part to this that to me is most counterintuitive is that these people are spending, these Israelites have spent 400 years in bondage, generations have been born and died in this oppressive state, right? And if you're these people and you have this oral tradition tradition that there is a God who has made a promise to your forefathers that he will make you a blessed nation and will make you many in number, that promise doesn't seem true at this point in time. And many, some of you may feel this way for different things in your life. You could have different aspects of your life that is so painful, or places where injustice is so deep that you think, will this ever be redeemed? Will, will God's deliverance ever come to this place, right? 400 years is a really long time. But Mary preached on hope and suffering, and we're going to get to that part because there is a lot of hope and suffering. And the fact is, I'm confident God was active in those 400 years, and that is what was spurring on the hope that they did have. But by reading it, you just don't see it, you know? And I think about, like, what this would be like. Can you imagine if you broke an arm or something? You broke a bone. I've never broken a bone, so I don't know what it feels like, but I am sure, I've heard it's really painful. So if you break a bone and you go to the emergency department and you walk in and you're in all this pain and there's a bunch of people waiting there, but you see that the triage nurse, the person who has the power to send you back to the doctor whenever they want is somebody you know really well. It's one of your best friends. And you know they love you, Right? And you're thinking, oh, good, I'm going to get relief soon, right? Because this person loves me. And they're going to just scoot me right on back to the doctor so that I can be rescued from the situation I'm in, right? But instead of asking you to go back, they ask you to sit down. And you sit there in all that pain right in front of their face while they have the power to help you 
and they send other people back. And you're going, what's up with this, right? I'm suffering. Don't you love me? What you don't know is that they also love those other people that went back. You know, one was their favorite teacher, and they love that person. One was their aunt, and they love that person too. And this is how it is with God. Even though he had the power to change the suffering and the situation of the Israelites, even though he had that power and was seeing them suffering, it doesn't negate his love. When you think of Jesus and the intense suffering on the cross that we can't even imagine, do we believe that God didn't love him in that moment because he let that be prolonged and he let that be as awful as it was? No. We know without a doubt God loved him through all of that. And the same is true for our circumstances. Okay, so this points to the idea that God's plan is greater than we know. Okay, um, there's a slide for this. Acts chapter 17, 26, and 27. I love this passage. It says, And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Okay. So this is basically telling us that everything that happens in empire... Every empire that has ever risen and fallen, every empire that has gained territory or lost territory was all part of God's plan. And he does this partly out of judgment at times and partly out of grace at other times. And he's doing it so that perhaps people will see him and turn to him because he's not far from anybody. Okay? We're going to see how this ties to our story when we look at Genesis chapter 15, verses 13, 14, and 16. Then this is God talking to Abraham, the first forefather, the first person that he encountered and said, I will make a nation out of you. I promise to do this. I will bless the whole world through you. And God said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And this is the part that I want to point out. When you read the Genesis, when you read like the first five books of the Bible, there's places where judgment comes in and it looks awful. And you think, oh, this is really terrible. But this is where you see God's grace and his mercy. Because he said, this isn't happening right away. Because there's this wicked people who lived in the land of Canaan, these Amorites, but their wickedness isn't complete. And what I think is happening in that moment is what it's describing in Romans is this mercy of God over this people who he hasn't actually called as his possession, but he still loves. Like we see in the book of Jonah, when God sends Jonah to a completely pagan society who is completely wicked and God's mercy just rains down on them and they repent. Okay, so this is part of what's happening. While Israel is enslaved in Egypt and while they're suffering, God's mercy is extending over other people. Okay, so this is where we see his plan just being so much greater than we know. And I have like this little slide picture of an of a, um, iceberg. <laughs> you know, up top, that's kind of what we know, right? Down below is what's really happening. When you're in those places of suffering, like there's all kinds of things that are true about those places, all kinds of things that God is doing there. And I think most of the time we don't even have a clue what most of those things are. Someday we might... Okay, 
And then the last point is that God's plan for deliverance fulfills his promises. Okay, this passage that we just read, Genesis 15, 13, it begins by saying, know for sure, Abraham, that your descendants that I'm blessing in number and in might, these descendants are going to be slaves for 400 years. Know for sure this is happening, okay? And behold, it happens, right? And part of the way that we know this is true, there's a slide for this, is um, Genesis, no, sorry, Exodus 6, 16 through 20. We're not going to read this, but this is one of those genealogies. There's another page to it, but if you, if you see this, in this genealogy, there's all these names. You come across these in the scriptures sometimes, and you're like, oh, I don't, why is this here? There's all these names I can't pronounce. This is so tedious. It's like two chapters long, et cetera, et cetera. And almost always, I'm sure always, but there's different places where you're like, oh, I know why this is important. But this one, I think the reason why this is important is in this genealogy, it, it gives all these names, but only three of them does it name how long they live, Okay. Um, it names Levi, Kohath, and Amram, and it tells their ages. And this is significant because God has made this promise that you will be slaves for 400 years. He made this promise generations and generations ago. And now in this book, we're getting an account of the generations that lived in Egypt under this oppression, okay? And it started with Levi, who was Joseph's brother, okay? Levi lived 137 years. His son Kohath lived in Egypt, and he lived 133 years. Amram lived in Egypt. He lived 137 years and then came Moses from Amram. And if you're really good at math, you can add these numbers and find out that they, they add up to 407 years, okay? So the promise is being fulfilled. God knew it was going to happen. He said it was going to happen. And he's, he's about to deliver on this promise that he's going to deliver this people, okay? Um, so the other part of the promise that God gives in that Genesis account is that even now, when he's talking to Abraham, your descendants will be slaves, I will deliver them, and they will come out with great possessions. And he's reiterating the very same thing to Moses hundreds of years later, and he says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and of any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And it's like God is saying, not only am I going to deliver you, which is enough, but on top of that, I'm giving you extra blessing, right? And so <laughs> he's about to do it. We're going to hear more about it next week, okay? He's about to do this deliverance, and what I call this is a micro-deliverance. That's what I call it because you see them all through the Bible, all these micro-deliverances, and basically what they do is they all point. They all point one direction. They all converge in one direction, and that is to the great deliverance, right? The one great one. When, when God's presence came down and Jesus came to earth, and he started to enact this really, really counterintuitive plan, Right? I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to do really gross things. I'm going to get down in the dirt. I'm going to wash people's feet. And in the end, I'm going to die. Right? All this, it's like just counterintuitive. And there's all this suffering. And it's like, this doesn't even make sense. But this is God's plan. And this is how he did it with Jesus. Right? And then, not only is he delivered to death, but then he's delivered from death back to life. And this is the great deliverance because you and I, we all have deliverance stories. And the ones that we're living out of also go directly back. Our micro-deliverances stories are going directly back to this great deliverance of Jesus. So whatever the place is that you 
are walking in that is your Egypt, that is your suffering place, that is your place of hardship that feels like it's never going to change, or whoever you're walking with that's in that place, you can know for certain that the great deliverance, when Jesus shed his blood, broke the curse that had the power over every other space of wickedness. Okay, so we, that's really where I'm going to close. <laughs> um, I, just, I just love, love what God did here. You know, when he came down to Moses and he came and he met with him, we think about the holy ground piece and how it's like, how can we even approach God? But then you see this intimate scene unfolding. And that's what he desires for us. He desires for us to come close into that place of intimacy where he can do all this other work and give us maybe part of his plan or at least the endurance to cling to his promises um, wherever his plan is being enacted. And then ultimately he gives us the power to walk through him, walk through it with him. So thank you.